No. That is totally wrong. Hello, and welcome to Girls, Ghosts, and Ghouls, episode 10, I believe. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's episode 10. It is time for the local episode, so we'll we'll be talking about a Winnipeg haunt today. And it's just C. I'm back on my own to deliver this story to you guys, and I hope you enjoy it. Hope everyone had a pretty good Halloween. Ours was actually real sad. We had maybe 20 kids, and usually we have like 150 to 200, and it wasn't even a bad night. Like, it wasn't snowing, it wasn't raining, it was just your average kind of chilly fall evening and yet we barely had anybody show up for candy we had so much candy left over so yeah it was sad but uh we had a friend come and hang out with us and uh yeah so that was halloween it was kind of a letdown which is disappointing because it is normally my favorite day of the year so yeah Anyway, I just want to thank everybody that has been leaving us reviews and everything on iTunes. We do read them. It's so appreciated. And we do understand that the show isn't necessarily for everybody. So if you don't like our voices or like the way that we deliver the show, that's totally fine. Can't be for everyone. But uh, you don't have to listen either. So yeah, for everyone who is enjoying the show and for everyone who keeps listening, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Anyway, today we are talking about Hamilton House in Winnipeg. They say in most haunted houses in Winnipeg, the dead are trying to contact the living, but they say in Hamilton House, which is on Henderson Highway in Winnipeg, that it's the opposite of that. The home's weird reputation started in 1920 when a Winnipeg doctor started hosting a bunch of seances in the home. So I think we talked about this before in the early 1900s, like especially like the 1910s, 1920s, spiritualism had a huge kick in the world. So a lot of really well-known, renowned people were getting into spiritualism and they were hosting seances and they wanted mediums and psychics to come to their homes and try and contact the dead or summon the dead. I don't know exactly what kicked off this obsession with it, but they started all sorts of paranormal societies and spiritualist societies and like Arthur Conan Doyle was a huge believer in it after his wife died. And I guess that was probably because he wanted to know or think there was some way that he could still contact her. But it looks like in Winnipeg that was a huge thing as well. Um, Although I do believe that there are mediums and psychics and I believe that people can communicate with those on the other side. I know in this time particularly, and I'm sure still now, there's a lot of people that fake it and were preying on these people's beliefs. So they would set up a seance or host a seance and then rig it up so that it looked like the candles were floating or the table was levitating or things like that to really believe people and they were totally just in it to make the money and and not really to give people what they wanted because they didn't have that 
actual ability. They were in it with a bad intention. But either way, this is what started happening at Hamilton House. Dr. Thomas Glendennan Hamilton desperately wanted to contact the dead. So when he started as a doctor, he believed he was a scientist conducting psychic research. So initially he started doing it in secret, just by himself. His research and the seances he held suddenly became really popular and they began attracting attention all across of Canada and all across the world. And Hamilton House isn't necessarily known as the most haunted home in the city, but it's definitely one of the better known for the supernatural activity that goes on there. So my research said that the stereotypical view of psychics is people who are a little weird and they're probably a loner and they're on the fringes of society. But this was not what Dr. Hamilton was like at all. He was initially born uh, near Toronto in 1873, and at age 10, his family left there and they moved to a homestead near Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. In the first couple years, they had a family farm there and it was doing really well, but eventually it kind of died out and... The Northwest Rebellion of 1885 brought um, a lot of disruption and disrepair to their farm, and the family actually used their homestead to provide accommodation to soldiers and military that were trying to recover. And because it was a distraction, they weren't concentrating so much on the farm. But they did make it through the rebellion completely unscathed, other than their business. But the end of the rebellion didn't mean that they got back to their farming. Unfortunately, Thomas's father and sister both died within a couple months of each other. And if that wasn't bad enough, there was a huge drought right after that that wiped out the rest of their farm. So... They fell on real bad times, so they made it through a war, basically. Then they lost two of their family members. Then a drought came and took whatever they had left. So, hoping for better opportunity, they left that farm in Saskatchewan, and they decided to move to Winnipeg. So things got a lot better once they got here, and Thomas decided he was going to go into medicine and become a doctor. So he graduated from the Manitoba Medical College in 1903, and he chose to move into the Elmwood area, and that's where he wanted to set up his medical practice. His son said that he did his rounds by bicycle at first, and then by a horse and buggy, only later by an open-topped touring car. So he kind of graduated upward the more he practiced the more money he made he went from bike to horse and buggy and then to car so I guess that really shows you how he he made it how he climbed the uh scales as it were not scales I don't know you know what I'm saying it's fine Three years after he graduated from medical school, he married a woman named Lillian May Forrester, who had just graduated from nursing, 
Aw, the old cliche, the nurse and the doctor. Lillian also played a key role in the psychic research in their home later on. They had four children. A daughter named Margaret was born in 1909. Their son, Glenn, was born in 1911. And then they had twin boys who were named Arthur and James, who were born in 1915. Dr. Hamilton served on the Winnipeg School Board for 10 years, and then he was elected as an MLA, or a local representative, for Elmwood in 1915, and he later served as president of the Manitoba Medical Association. So everything about him indicated that he was a respected member of the community, he was a medical professional, a politician, an upstanding family man, he was involved in his community, he was obviously outgoing if he was getting elected into all these positions, so he wasn't what people stereotyped as, say, like a psychic or spiritualist fanatic in what they believed that meant. Uh, In 1910, Dr. Hamilton and his wife and daughter, because they didn't have the boys yet at this time, moved into a home that was at 185 Kelvin Street, which is now Henderson Highway. It was a large two-and-a-half-story, painted brown with a white trim, and it had a large front porch and a single dormer located on the top floor. So his surgery, or his office, was located in the basement, and it had its own entrance separate from the house entrance. And they had other offices occupying the main floor, and then the family lived on the upper levels. As his reputation grew, um, the home became known as Hamilton House, named after him. Unfortunately, his bad times came back to get him. Couldn't be good for too long. In 1919, the Spanish flu struck their household, and three-year-old Arthur died. The virus was brought back by soldiers who came back from the First World War, and it just spread like wildfire. Um, Millions of people across the world were infected, and the estimate for Canada was that it was responsible for 50,000 deaths. So he felt a lot of guilt about the death of his son because he was a medical professional and he felt like he should have been able to protect him from the epidemic. But unfortunately, I mean, sometimes there's literally nothing you can do. I mean, now we have like vaccines for polio and measles and all that shit. But back then, I mean, if you were exposed to it, you could get it and there was no way to do anything about it and you either died or you were totally disfigured or who god knows so many different things happened but so but he still had a lot of guilt about it he felt like he should have been able to prevent it and this is when he got into spiritualism and psychic research so again it's like the death of a close family member kind of triggered this need this interest So, spiritualism is defined as a belief that the dead can communicate with the living, typically through the help of a medium. 
So the popularity of it actually began in the 1840s, and then it rapidly grew from there. And it had been around for a while, but the idea of trying to communicate with the dead through seances got really, really popular at the end of the First World War. And that's because, I think you can guess, so many young men died horrifically in the First World War. And I think they left behind so many grieved family members, parents, wives, girlfriends, children that needed some kind of belief or hope that they could reunite with them in some way. Some towns and villages were almost completely wiped out of their male population after the war, so it was hugely devastating, and I think that kind of explains why at this point in time, like after 1914, when the or between, I guess after 1918 when the World War ended, that suddenly this huge surge in seances occurred. Technologies such as radios were demonstrating that voices could be carried for thousands of miles through what appeared to be thin air. So people wanted to know if voices of the living could travel through thin air, then why not voices of the dead? I mean, that makes sense to me. And I guess that's kind of a still a common belief. I mean, a lot of ghosts investigating technology uses that sort of belief in different frequencies and um, airwaves to try and read what's being said or the energy that's around. So, I mean, they were onto something. They weren't totally off here. The movement typically attracted people of the middle and upper class, and I think they came into it skeptical and they wanted scientific proof, which is why people like Dr. Hamilton and other scientific people were in it to try and get that proof. And it also helped kind of give some validity to it because if they can think, well, this man of science, this doctor believes in it, he's hosting it, he's putting his mark of approval on it, then he must know something that we don't know. I think the reason that upper and middle class people became more involved with it was because frankly they could afford to be. <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, during Dr. Hamilton's research, he tried a lot of different ways to communicate with the spirit world. And his first experiment was what most people's first experiment is, and he began with a Ouija board. The Ouija board first started out as a game. As most of us know, it's still marketed as a game, but during the First World War, it became known as the way that one could try and contact the spirit world and reach those who had passed on. I assume that everyone listening knows what a Ouija board is. It's also known as a spirit board, uh, typically made of wood, and there's letters on it. You have a heart-shaped little thing with a hole in it that moves around supposedly by the will of the spirits to spell out messages or answer questions for you from the dead. So that's how he started communicating, uh, but soon enough he and his wife would move on to trying other ways to communicate. 
according to their son, Glenn, he said, Undoubtedly, 99% of the results that were gotten were fraudulent. People were just fooling around. He does say an exception was, when Mrs. Poole was around, this planchette or Ouija board would just go nuts. Mrs. Poole would later play a key role as a medium in the seances. So I don't know who Mrs. Poole is, but obviously she's a medium, and I'm assuming she will come into the story later. He moved on from the Ouija board to mental telepathy. Uh, In this experiment, he partnered with a church minister named Reverend Daniel Norman McLaughlin. That is a name. The two men would each go into separate rooms, and then they would try and communicate with one another by sending mental messages back and forth. Okay. After conducting his experiments on mental telepathy, the doctor then began to fork it... (laughs) focus his research on what supernatural activity happens during a seance. So the seances took place with everyone typically gathered around a table and the table was used as the main way to communicate with the dead. So there were a lot of different ways they would try and use the table. The first was known as table wrapping where participants would say, ask a yes or no question, and then listen for a rapping sound for the answer. So it'd be like, yes is two knocks, no is three knocks, so are you here? And if they heard knock, knock, yes, I'm here. Another way is table tipping, table traveling, and table flipping were also used, interesting. These are things that usually happen when people are angry, so I'm not sure I'd want a spirit to be table-flipping in my home, but that's fine. These methods all involved the table moving, obviously, in some way. Participants would say aloud each letter of the alphabet, and then when the table tilted, floated up, or moved, that letter would be written down. This process would be repeated until they had a clear message spelled out. But I also, I often wonder, I guess they probably just stop when they get a word, but you would think, like, you just get a series of letters and they either mean nothing or it's like a bunch of words all jumbled together. So then it becomes a game almost because you have to figure out what the words are. It's like a word search. Um, yeah, so to help control these experiments, Thomas built a three-sided cabinet. What? out of plywood. Isn't that just a bookshelf? Across the open side of the cabinet, he put netting there to the height of about five feet. And according to his son, Glenn, Glenn seems to be the one that was interviewed the most, all of the hands on the table would charge it full of energy and the medium would then push the table into the cabinet and the net would be drawn across it. This was all done in the dark. The table could be heard to charge forward and bulge the net in a away as though it was trying to escape and it was this that got Thomas interested. He said there must be some kind of psychic force working within the table because we're trapping the energy with the net and it's trying to escape. Interesting theory. Besides using the table, the mediums had other techniques of communicating, obviously. 
Mediums would sometimes do automatic writing where they would allow the spirit to take over their body and would write the words or messages directly from the spirit. The mediums would also known to enter into trances where they would often speak or act as though they were the soul of the departed. Now I think that this was a pretty common one and this were these were really the ones I think that got people convinced that this was legitimate because they would have done their research and they would know certain things or bring up a watch or something that they could relate to and and really it would resonate with them. The mediums would also act as a conduit for ectoplasm. Ew. Or what the Hamiltons called teleplasm. So for those who don't know what ectoplasm is, it's a visible substance that comes from the bottom... Bottom? Disgusting. <laughs> from the body of the medium, signaling the presence of a ghost. The teleplasm, or ectoplasm, would quickly dissolve in light. So photos showing the substance were taken when the room was in complete darkness and using a flash. So they would capture it, and then after the flash exposed it, it would completely disappear. But it did show up in photos, apparently. Hamilton's photographs of the ectoplasm are best known parts of his research. So much so that in 1920s, Winnipeg began to become known as the ectoplasm capital of the world. Well, that's fun. I mean, we're now the Slurpee capital of the world, and briefly... Several times we were the murder capital of Canada, but I mean, these are things that we don't like to brag about, so. Dr. Hamilton then took his research, then, sorry, no. Dr. Hamilton took his research extremely seriously, and he wanted to try and document what was happening in the house. One of the pieces of equipment he used was called a bell box, and the ringing of the bell would indicate when a spirit was in the room, or if a photo should be taken. What? Yeah, that's what it says. The bell would ring if the top of the box was pushed down. The bell boxes were positioned high atop a wooden cabinet and out of the participant's reach. The most important piece of equipment for the doctor was his cameras, and during the research he took hundreds of photos to record what was happening in the seances. As the room was always kept dark, he always needed some kind of light source, and at first the cameras used flash power, leading to an often very hot and suffocating kind of room. Later, he was able to use a handheld trigger with flash bulbs. What? I don't understand the difference, but I'm not into old stuff, so... I'm into old stuff, but, like, I'm not well-versed on old camera flashes, so sorry. During the 1920s and 30s, hundreds of seances were held at Hamilton House, and no two of them were anything alike, so they all had a similar formation, and they kind of followed the same format, but nothing ever happened exactly the same twice. Uh, if you were lucky enough to be invited to take place in a seance, the evening would start with your arrival at Hamilton House. You would be greeted at the front door by Miss Eileen Sykes, who was the medical secretary. She would then lead you upstairs and make the introductions to whomever else was there. And when you looked around the room, you would probably see a lot of prominent Winnipeg professionals, lawyers, doctors, politicians. 
So this research that I did has created sort of a scenario. So it indicates, counting yourself, you see there are 10 people in the room, an equal number of men and women. You see lawyer Isaac P- Pitblabdo, a distinguished member of the bar who served as president of the Manitoba Law Society and was a founding member of St. Charles Country Club. Dr. Henry Bruce Chown is also in attendance. He is a highly respected medical researcher in the fields of pediatric help. So this, is, I think, is just an example of people that attended, and these are the type of people that you would see if you went to a seance there. Before they began their seances, Dr. Hamilton would explain that there are six different roles that needed to be played in the seance. You, for example, would be a sitter or a witness, And once you got inside the room, you'd hold hands with the other witnesses and try to provide the energy needed to summon the spirit. The other roles include recorder, who took down the notes and what happened, or recording witnesses' recollections. Uh, When she was not available, often Hamilton's wife, Lillian, or his daughter, Margaret, would do that. The reason the, the lawyer was there was because he would be the scrutineer or the checker. And so he had to look around and make sure that everything's above board and that no one is being bamboozled, basically. So the lawyer was there to make sure that everything was legit. So he must have been a bit of a skeptic in this regard because he wanted to make sure that nothing had been tampered with and stuff like that. So he, it was literally his job to go around the room, check all the equipment, make sure there was no wires or strings or things like that. Then he would be on the lookout for anyone cheating during the seance, so he was watching everybody. Dr. Hamilton would be the investigator, so he would run the seance and trigger the cameras when he needed to take pictures or he wanted evidence. Here's where Mrs. Poole comes into uh, the story. She's described as an elderly Scottish woman, and her name was Elizabeth Poole. And Dr. Hamilton explains that her role is the most important of the night because she is the medium. So she was the one responsible for making contact with the other side. So the last and final role would be that of the spirit guide, who is the soul from the other side who will try and help the group contact other spirits. They do not know at the beginning who the spirit guide will be, and they cannot find out until they start the seance. He says in the past that some of the spirit guides were Black Cloud, who was known as an Aboriginal or Indigenous spirit. Another guide had been Katie King, who allegedly was the daughter of the infamous infamous pirate Henry Morgan, Captain Morgan. The doctor uh, would then tell everyone that they had to go into separate rooms based on their gender. So the men would go into one room and the women would go into another. In the male's room, uh, the scrutineer or the lawyer would do a thorough search of all of them to ensure that they didn't have any hidden items or anything that they basically could cheat with. In the women's room... A female scrutineer would do the same. And that would probably have been Miss Sykes or um, Hamilton's wife. So after everyone has been 
um, looked over and made sure that they're not cheating, attention turns to the medium who is given extra attention because she is the one guiding them. They really need to make sure that she's not cheating them. So they would actually make her completely disrobe. And this is done because she is most likely to be suspected of rigging things, which, I mean, makes sense. She's the one communicating with the spirit. So I think making her get naked is a little extreme, but who am I to say? I've never been to a seance. <laughs> so after this, everyone else goes back into the research room. It's not an overly large room, but everyone can fit. Two windows in the room were blocked off to make sure that no outside light could come in because it had to be done in the dark. The table would be in the center of the room and there was also a small desk in the corner and that's where the secretary would sit and uh, record everything that was being said, whether it be letters or messages, things like that. And then everyone has to take a place around the table, alternating male-female, so... Man, woman, man, woman, man, woman. To even out the energy, I would assume. Although it doesn't say why. Uh, once everybody's sitting down, the lawyer or the scrutineer would put seals on all the doors or windows to make sure that no one can leave. Oh, Jesus. Can come in or leave during the seance. That might give me, like, a little bit of anxiety. I, I mean, I do love a good escape room, but... You can actually leave the escape room if you need to, so I think actually being sealed in here and not being allowed to leave might give me a panic attack. It's fine. It's fine. After that, they turn off the lights and everyone is in complete darkness. Okay, this also, not a fan. I went to a haunted house one time where they did this to us. We walked into a garage and... Um, the lights were out and they made us sing this song and all hold hands and I was flipping out because we were around a table basically doing a fake seance and I was convinced someone was going to grab my leg from under the table and so my friend and I were like dancing around kicking our legs being like this is not happening you're not going to grab us spoiler alert these weird lights came on and someone was like hanging from their afters but yeah good times good times I don't think they do that haunted house anymore, which is sad. Because, I mean, it was pretty fun. Scary, but fun. And it was just like someone did this at their home. Like, they, they set up this, like, maze in their backyard that led to their garage. And then their garage was, like, the final event. And then you could leave. Anyway, yeah. Irrelevant. But basically, we were doing a fake seance. So it was a lot like this. Uh, yeah, so once they're in complete darkness, everyone would recite the Lord's Prayer to protect themselves, I guess, and then they would start. So initially, everyone just sat in silence, waiting to see what would happen, and a lot of people would get into a state where they felt like they were almost falling asleep, so I guess almost a hypnotic state, because it was just so quiet and so dark and no one was talking and you just get into a, a sort of lull and once you're in this kind of state is when you would typically start to hear a voice so in one particular incident the voice that came from the medium was the voice of Walter Stinson 
He was the deceased brother of famous psychic Marjorie Crandon. Walter tells Dr. Hamilton that he wants the group to sing. Why is this a thing? (sighs) Everyone begins to sing, and soon the group is becoming quite loud and having a good time like you were at a normal event. After they sang three upbeat songs, Walter, who is their spirit guide, which is why he spoke, asks everyone to quiet down because the medium is now in a trance. Then you hear a voice calling out. Now this is again a situation where they're wanting you to pretend that you are here. So startled, you realize the voice is calling your name. The spirit says it's your grandfather and asks if you are well. You reply, you are well. Still shocked by the encounter, you can only think of asking the spirit if your grandfather is also well. Your grandfather replies, he is good and he has passed over to the other side and you no longer need to grieve him. The voice then goes silent. After sitting in the dark for a few minutes, Dr. Hamilton announces the seance is over for tonight. On your way out, Lillian thanks you for coming and tells you every seance is a little bit different. Sometimes very little, if anything, happens, and they spend most of the evening in long periods of silence. Other times, like tonight, there is singing and either even a great deal of laughter and noise. Some nights, instead of singing, they use an electric phonograph to provide music. She tells you the truth is they never know what will happen. You thank her for the hospitality and begin your walk home. On the way, realizing you were one of the lucky few to have attended a seance at the famous Hamilton house. So this recollection is from the book Haunted Winnipeg by Matthew Comis. And this is where we get a lot of our research for our local stories because he is the one that does uh, Haunted Winnipeg tours, I believe or one of the people that does them. So he has a lot of information and a lot of research on it. So in his book, he has this scenario posted there. So the seances at the Hamilton house eventually became world famous. um, But initially they were conducted in secret because Dr. Hamilton felt if people knew his personal involvement then it would reflect badly on his reputation and yeah it would basically he was worried about losing his job and and what people thought of him and his professional standing and all that sort of thing which I mean I guess is understandable so when he first started doing this he didn't tell anybody and then he gradually started bringing in a few kind of close friends that he felt he could trust and that weren't going to go around and broadcast it but as he continued with his research and doing the seances, he started corresponding with other psychic researchers, and after a lot of persuasion, he gave his first lecture on telekinesis to the Winnipeg Medical Society in 1926. And after he gave his first lecture, his public reputation for psychic research just went wild, and he suddenly was wanted to give lectures all across Canada. And after he gave them all across Canada, people from the United States and England wanted to go. He even spoke um, at Carnegie Hall in New York. He also wrote a bunch of articles on his work. So after he gave this first lecture is basically when his reputation just went nuts and everybody wanted to hear him talk and they wanted to know about his research. 
So his reputation for a psychic researcher became well-established, and a lot of famous people started visiting Hamilton House, and this is how it became nationally famous and then eventually worldwide famous. Uh, One of his guests was Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. The Prime Minister was highly interested in communicating with the spirits, and he often visited mediums on his own and apparently even owned a crystal ball. During the time he spent with mediums, he was known to speak with Leonardo da Vinci, other political leaders, his dead mother, and sometimes even his pet dogs. Okay. But he was worried about what the public might say or that his opponents would use it in the political election as, like, this guy's a crackpot, like, he talks to the dead. Still, he visited in 1933, and at the time, he was leader of the opposition. But his interests actually seemed to help him, because he became a prime minister again, and eventually served over 20 years, and this was leading up to World War II, so he is one of the better-known prime ministers in Canada because he did serve so long and he served in such a major time during the world war second world war hey I talked about him earlier another famous visitor was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle creator of Sherlock Holmes in a well-documented visit to Winnipeg in July 1923 Conan Doyle and his wife attended a seance at Hamilton House Sir Arthur and Dr. Hamilton had much in common. They were both medical doctors, both had grieved the passing of their sons, and both were interested in psychic research. The main difference was that Conan Doyle embraced spiritualism as a religion, where Hamilton never did. People often find it ironic because he wrote Sherlock Holmes, who relies solely on logic and evidentiary things but he was the public face of spiritualism, which is the complete opposite and mostly faith-based. So he was in Winnipeg as part of a North American lecture tour that he was doing on spiritualism. So I was wrong. I guess it wasn't the death of his wife that got him into spiritualism. It was the death of his son. Well, you learn new things every day. So the Conan Doyles attended the seance on what was called Dominion Day, July 1st, 1923. That is now known as Canada Day. Including them, there was 10 people there in the darkened research room, and everyone placed their hands on the table, and the table began to shake. The table was then placed into Dr. Hamilton's specially designed cabinet and with netting, and out of the table... Uh, No, the table came out of there, clattering again entirely on its own and when no one was touching it. Conan Doyle described the table acting like a restless dog in a kennel, springing, tossing, and beating up against the supports, finally bounding out with a velocity which caused me to quickly get out of the way. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle only made one visit to Hamilton House during his life. He was even heard to remark, Splendid work, splendid, good mediums, my life's work, carry on, keep the banner waving, good night. So I guess he must have written this down because it's signed ACD at the end of it. I'm assuming he maybe wrote this in a guest book or something, so he was not heard remarking this. 
Of course, uh, what? Oh my God, no. Okay, so he did not write it down. These remarks were made in 1932, almost two years after Conan Doyle had died of a heart attack back in his native Britain. So he said this in a seance to them. Cool. So obviously accusations were made that all of the seances were fraudulent or not genuine. I mean, if that grandfather example is anything to go by, that was super vague. So that really could have been anyone. Hey, it's your grandpa. How are you? I'm good. That's good. Okay, bye. Literally could have been anyone. Um, so the accusations were that the Hamilton House medium had staged all of the unexplained occurrences. Uh, they also attacked the ectoplasm photographs. Uh, one theory was that the photographs, uh, or that the ectoplasm was made from tissue paper and that the faces were cut out from photographs. I don't understand. They do actually, in the book that I'm looking at, they did have a picture at the front. So I'm just going to take a look at that picture. Oh, I, I understand. So it does actually, I, I get what they're saying, because it, it kind of looks like like a white foam, kind of stiff sort of foam is coming out of the medium's nose and mouth and is like hanging off of the chin. And I see why they could think that it... Uh, it was tissue paper, but mm, I, I would say it's more of like a, it looks more um, like cotton fluff or something like that. But I, I see why they would say that. Uh, but Dr. Hamilton's son, Glenn, also became a doctor, and he also believed in the research. Shortly before he died, he gave a series of interviews to Dr. James Nichols, who was a psychology professor. He offered a number of examples he felt provided evidence of the psychic research. One example he mentioned happened during his childhood. He remembered when he was a young boy, he always put two or three spoonfuls of sugar in his tea. And after dinner one evening, his grandmother was doing the dishes, and when she went to wash his cup, she commented that he had enough sugar in his teacup to sweeten the dishwater. Being a cheeky boy, he replied, well, if it's that sweet, why don't you taste it? And of course, she never did. But several years later, after she'd passed away, she appeared to him at a seance, and the medium said his grandmother had a message for him. He's, she said, she's pointing at a basin, and then she takes a cup and drinks the water out of the basin. Glenn said for him this was proof because he'd never told anyone about that conversation between himself and his grandmother about the sugar and the dishwater, so only she could have known that. The life work of Thomas and Lillian Hamilton in psychic research was donated eventually to the University of Manitoba by their daughter, Margaret. The collection consists of photographs, scrapbooks, letters, attendance sheets, speeches, news clippings, and several other documents. So if anyone's interested in his research, you can actually go to the university and request to study 
their collection for yourself and draw your own conclusion. So, yeah, this house, like I said, is believed to be pretty haunted, and that is because of the amount of seances that took place in this house. It was a regular occurrence, so they were constantly summoning spirits there. And although they had a medium guiding it, you never know who is left behind. So, yeah, I couldn't find anything exactly recent about the Hamilton house other than the fact that it is still around and apparently the Winnipeg Paranormal Investigation Group was permitted to do an investigation there in 2010, so eight years ago, but when I was on their site, I couldn't find anything about their results, so I don't know what happened there. But uh, Dr. Hamilton died suddenly in 1935 of a heart attack. Um, After that, his wife Lillian and daughter Margaret continued the research. Later, Lillian and their son James produced a summary of his work in the book Intention and Survival, which was published in 1942. Uh, Lillian died in 1956. And then Margaret continued writing articles, and she did a series of them in 1957 for Psychic News in England, and the 13 articles were then collected together in a booklet and was also circulated to daily papers throughout Canada. Margaret then went on to produce a second edition of Intention and Survival in 1977 and then published a third edition of it in 1980. So if anyone's interested, maybe you can go looking for copies of those and get some more information on their research, especially if you don't live in Manitoba and you don't have access to the archive at the university. I know that more recently it's gained a lot more popularity because a lot of people don't know the history behind the Hamilton House, the seances, and just the fact that it was so widely popular, like worldwide. It's just such a strange thing for this doctor in Winnipeg, which in retrospect is a pretty small city in comparison to places like Toronto, Vancouver, London, New York, and yet this doctor in Winnipeg, especially at that time, which was much smaller then, got all of this recognition from his peers and from around the world, so it's really fascinating. I would love to go to Hamilton House myself and do some kind of investigation there, because I'm sure, like I said, with all the seances that went on, there has to be residual energy there. But yeah, so that's the story of Winnipeg's Hamilton House. Nothing too spooky. I mean, the seances in themselves are spooky, but no reports of anyone being harmed or anything like that. It's just that there's a lot of energy there, and he had a lot of research done, and they were able to contact the dead. It would be interesting, though, to do a seance to see if you could actually contact Hamilton himself and see what he has to say. But yeah, so it's now at 185 Henderson Highway, but it is also still there. So yeah, thanks for listening to that episode, you guys, and I will be back with Key for the next episode. 
don't know what we're doing yet, but yeah. If you guys have any personal stories of your own or recommendations, make sure that you're sending us an email at girlsghostsandghouls.com. We love hearing your stories and you might get a chance to be featured on the show if you send us a message. So yeah, don't forget to do that. Also, you can find us on Twitter at girlsggpodcast, Instagram and Facebook at Girls Ghost Ghouls. And our website is www.girlsghostsandghouls.com. Yeah, so thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.